This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Garden Web where, as our former dean once said, your heart and your head can be friends. The School of Divinity strives to provide a holistic education that stretches the mind, stirs the heart, and prepares the call for Christian ministry. Immerse yourself in the life of the community and visit gardner-web.edu backslash divinity for more information. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's podcast will center on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, featuring a conversation with Dr. Glenn Jonas of Campbell University, a church historian. We also want to let you know about several upcoming podcasts, including Zach Hunt, John Singletary of Baylor's Diana R. Garland School of Social Work, Hannah McMahon of the New Baptist Covenant, a recap of 2017 with our Executive Coordinator Susie Painter and Associate Coordinator of Communications and Development Jeff Hewitt, along with stories from pastors and practitioners from across the fellowship. Before we get to our conversation with Dr. Jonas, we want to feature our collaborative Church Start initiative in McAllen, Texas. Along with Baptist Universities of Americas in San Antonio and CBF of Texas, CBF Global is training church starters along the Texas and Mexico border. Pastors are receiving theological education and practical training in church starts. You'll hear the stories of Jorge Sabata, CBF Texas Associate Coordinator, Ruben Ortiz, CBF Global Field Coordinator. The music featured is from the first retreat in September. Sabata has got to be the busiest man in Texas. Uh, he is doing work all over the place, of course, with Harvey recently having in Houston, but you're, you're constantly putting miles on your, on your vehicle going around everywhere. Um, but some of the most profound work you've done is right here in McAllen. Tell us, tell us about your connection with McAllen. I'm, uh, I'm, McAllen is on the Texas border and the Mexican uh, uh, and U.S. border. I've, uh, I was born in Mexico across the border. I grew up here in the McAllen area, and I've been doing ministry, uh, well, as, my, as a young kid and as a youth. 
and uh, started doing ministry in the colonias uh, through uh, Bogner International when I used to work there now with, uh, with CBF Texas. And I got connected with these pastors um, working uh, in the poorest areas of the, uh, the Rio Grande Valley here in Texas. And some of these pastors are laymen that got called into ministry with no experience in ministry, just the passion and the heart to, to preach the gospel. So I've, uh, these pastors are very humble. Uh, they want to learn. They, uh, they're doing a lot of work, but they want to learn, and they, they are very, uh, right now they're very teachable, uh, flexible, and uh, they have uh, been impressed with the work with CBF, and they want, uh, they want to affiliate with CBF, uh, being that they are Pentecostal, symbols of God, different denominations working together for the cause of the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, before we go any further, I just want to note that you started to tell how long you've been doing ministry here in McAllen, but then you completely avoided to, to tell how long. You wanted to avoid telling your age, but <laughs> you've been doing work in here a short period of time. Uh, no, it's been it's been a long time, and you've, you've made a lot of wonderful relationships here, including all the, these pastors outside of not just these 12 identified church starters, but all the pastors in this area. Mm -hmm. So how did you build relationships with these folks to create such a strong network here? First, um, you get to visit with them. You, you get to see the, the, the ministry they're doing, and you get out there and walk with them uh, in their ministries and uh, get to ask them questions of how they're doing, what are the needs. All these churches are uh, on, on poverty, but extreme poverty, uh, and so they have a lot of needs. Uh, a pastor not only just going to bring someone to Christ, but it's a package that they have of all kinds of, uh, you know, there's uh, from child abuse, negligence, uh, you know, sexual abuse in the children, uh, uh, human trafficking, uh, drugs. Uh, I mean, you're talking about a lot of things, witchcraft and all this. So uh, to, be, to be a pastor in these areas, uh, if you don't believe in the power of prayer, you, you learn that. If you don't pray, you're, you're going to be kind of a, on a, on a, losing the battle. But you, they are always struggling, uh, uh, and especially in the churches, because they are poor. Uh, they can't buy what we have in our churches, crayons, uh, scissors. They don't. They're, they're, the crayons are about five, six years old, very small. <laughs> scissors are uh, one child, one class has to share one pair of scissors. I mean, they struggle. They struggle to do the ministry. Uh, but when a North ministry like ours comes alongside with them, it's like, uh, for them, it's like uh, heaven was open for them, and, and having a mission group come and work alongside with them, doesn't matter we're Baptist or Pentecostal, it's kingdom work. They fit together with Baptists and, 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 and non-Baptists, and the, and the work start working, and they open their hearts uh, to us, and they trust us because they they start seeing what we're about. Well, they, they don't come here with they have to with no. Well, I said there's no obligation. Mm. You have to become a Baptist. No, uh, we're we're here because we want to build a kingdom, and we, he's part of the kingdom and the, the family and the church. So they are very open to be able to work alongside with us and us helping them casting a vision. It's mm. a powerful reminder in such a day and age of. Um division um, among churches and divisions within denominationalism um, that the work of the kingdom is what matters most not our theological differences not our petty differences that's a powerful reminder you know we're obviously 
in collaboration with Baptist Universities of America in San Antonio, along with CBF Texas. CBF Global is coming to help you know, provide theological education for these ministers. But as our CBF uh, pastors and congregations are listening to this, what are some beneficial ways they can help the churches that are going to continue to be here to be present to start or to continue the work they have been doing here in McAllen area? Well, uh, pray for us. Pray for these pastors. They need a lot of prayer. Uh, they're struggling as a family. They're struggling financially. All these pastors, they're working uh, uh, they're, they're full-time on hard labor. They're not in an office uh, in a, behind a computer. No, they're out there in the sun from uh, in the morning to night, uh, but they're still doing the ministry. Uh, the other one is to um, partner, you know, partner from a church. So even that they, you know, it doesn't matter that they don't have to be in Texas. They can be far away, but they can, they can partner with them at least once, come once a year and, and help them out, develop this ministry. Uh, you know, and the other one is maybe giving and financially to, you know, by partnering. That's, that's why we say uh, you can commit to these churches three, five years. And, uh, and we all say community transformation. You see that if you stay with that church with three, five years, you start seeing community transformation that uh, that community to come to know Christ. And, and these people, uh, of course, there's violence and drugs and all that. The community starts like the, the, the violence and all that gang-related stuff is gone because the, the church is be the beacon, the light in the community. We have, ch we have a church where we started a, in a colonia where it's poverty and there was drugs. Not even the, the sheriff's department will go in there. Uh, there was a nightclub, there was shootings. Uh, uh, and what happened, we, we opened a church there. Uh, within a year, everything was shut down. Mm. Uh, a lot of prayer. So there's, uh, and, and anyone can just look into our ministry and they can connect with us and we're going to connect into the kind of these ministries. It will be a life transformation for the, the whole church from the children to the youth to the adults and, and their ministries back home. Well, George, it's, uh, it is an honor to call you a friend. Thank you. Uh, it's an even greater honor to do, uh, do work in the kingdom together. Thank you Amen. for all that you do. Thank you, talk about celebrity sighting. I have sitting in front of me the brand new CBF Latino <laughs> field coordinator, Ruben Ortiz. Oh my goodness, I love that accent. <laughs> that roll the R perfectly? Yes, Ruben Ortiz. Very good. <laughs> uh, so Ruben and I are currently sitting, just to kind of let you gauge where we are, we are sitting in the retreat center in Mission, Texas, right next to McAllen. We have around us orange trees, and also they have these hairs down here that are like twice the size of normal rabbits just kind of running around everywhere. It's, it's hot, but, but good work is happening this week. So we're down here because we're doing church start training with uh, BUA, um, with some of the church churches down here to receive theological education. As you think around what's happening this week and then the three parts that are to come, how does this fit into the grand scheme of La Familia? 
Well, we are we are not in Texas anymore. <laughs> I think we are in a in, in a new time for for CBF and for La Familia, and it has to start in Texas because Texas is is big and is a is the home for a lot of Latinos and a lot of passion for missions and for transformation. And this is what La Familia is. La Familia is a it's a it's a big family uh, dedicated to create uh, links and missions and to connect people and to uh, transform communities. So that's the idea, and I'm I'm very happy, Andy, and I want to celebrate this this uh, uh, weekend with you and with a wonderful team here in Texas and with Harry Roland, which is with us in, in this in, uh, moment uh, right now. So it's a time to celebrate and to start a new beginning for for the Latinos in CBF. Yeah. Well, I think what I appreciate most about this weekend is uh, it, it truly defines CBF for me. It's not uh, CBF coming with, hey, here's how you start church. It's us uh, partnering with two other organizations to say, how can we put our resources together um, to bring the experience that Baptist University of America has with their uh, Baptist um, Bible Institute and bringing this certificate program um, you know, it's about collaboration. Yep. We are not reinventing the wheel. We are not uh, uh, trying to uh, give orders. Uh, we are just uh, journeying with them in the um, uh, great uh, missions they have and, and the great history of missions in, with Latinos. Uh, we're talking about Convención, too. We're talking about the BUA. Um, and they have a, a great history that we need to share, and we, we are here to collaborate. Um, and, and this is CBF. CBF is, is not giving orders. It's not with our own agenda or our own uh, uh, project. And we are not jealous. We are not trying to control things. We are people who share and who uh, worship together and, and people who celebrate what God is already doing in this place. For those that are kind of trying to follow the track that we're running down here, instead of just kind of doing a one-off event, uh, what we've done is we're working with Baptist University of America uh, to create uh, pre-retreat uh, work. They'll come to this retreat. We'll have some interim work. In January, we'll gather for another retreat. There'll be some more interim work to work on their certificate. We'll gather again in May, and then hopefully they'll wrap up their certificate program in December. So as we think about this program, what are, what are some of the other initiatives that are going on with La Familia? We want to know them, not only to, uh, through a certificate or through a program. Uh, behind uh, them are ministries, churches, people, faces, families, history, stories, and uh, you know, um, a lot of uh, culture, uh, food <laughs> even in, involved. So we now we want to meet them in person. They are not a program. They are real people um, fighting in the front line of the battle with the, a lot of struggling and problems and the so, social problems here, poverty and um, the, the problem with the, I don't want to put my, my words on that, but the problem with the wall, the famous wall, <laughs> we know. So, but we are here. We are not part of the news in uh, Washington or other places that we are doing too uh, as in advocacy, but we're present in the place that where uh, the news is is happening right now, and and we are we are here as a church, you know, as a brothers and sisters who wants to be the presence of Christ here. 
Well, as a, a recent former pastor of a CBF church, me as a current pastor of a CBF <laughs> church, I can say to our CBF congregations that we are seeing firsthand what investing in the fellowship is doing. Um, we are seeing the needs of this community um, and how these churches, these 12 churches that are going to be represented here, along with all the other churches here in the, the valley, are doing work um, against all of these difficult circumstances that people are facing. It's good kingdom work. It's a good investment for the fellowship. And many of them, and Andy, I have to say this, uh, many of them, their background is, is from Pentecostal churches. And this is very important because we are part of a big family. And uh, ecumenism is a good word. In, in our uh, language in CBF. So we are working with uh, other backgrounds, people, and at the same time, they are, they are discovering new ways to, to do uh, uh, missions uh, through us and to maybe learn some new uh, strategies or uh, models we are using in other parts. Uh, La Familia is for, for that. I have been talking with them about other models, other examples, in, in, in like in Cuba, what is happening with the South Church Movement or House uh, Church Movement in Cuba or in, in the rest of Latin America, Colombia, and uh, other other countries, or what is happening in North Carolina with Compañerismo Cristiano Emanuel, that are very good friends there. Uh, some of them <laughs> graduated from uh, BUA here. So we are connecting all the dots, and, and we are uh, making bridges. In, in this uh, special time that we are living, uh, and it's, it's wonderful. Renuevame, Señor Jesús, pon en mí tu corazón, porque todo lo que hay dentro. Necesita ser cambiado, Señor, porque todo lo que hay dentro de mi corazón necesita más de ti. Necesita más de ti. Our guest for this week's podcast is Dr. Glenn Jonas. He's the Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Science at Campbell University. He's the Charles Howard Professor of Religious, Religion of Christian Studies. He's the Director of the Honors Program. More importantly, he's the legendary scholar of the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Dr. Jonas uh, was one of the most formational um, professors of mine during my undergraduate experience here at Campbell University. Uh, the person who inspired me to love church history and the way that I love church history and made that my concentration and focus both in undergrad and in divinity school. Dr. J, welcome. Thank you, Andy. Good to, good to be with you. Now today, uh, in a sense, we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Though, if I was properly trained by you... Um, that means it wasn't necessarily that moment. There was a lot of people, a lot of things that were happening. We just give Luther credit and talking about people like uh, Peter Waldo and John Wycliffe and, and all these wonderful folks that had helped build 
to this point that we would look at as a theological revolution. Um, actually, I thought it would be fun today. I brought my Reformation notebook oh. from our time in our Reformation class. When did you, when did you have that class? Uh, this class, this was in fall of 05. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's back when I was a young whippersnapper. Yeah, Religion 333. Um, so, so here's what I want to look at. Looking back at our critical moment, of an All Saints Eve. Um, how does Luther's actions inspire the church today? Well, I think uh, I think he was certainly a, a, a courageous individual. Um, you know, Luther, um, and, and, and Luther's a strange mix of courage and fear. He he, um, uh, you know, he had these really cowering, fearful moments in his life. Um, Particularly as he as he understood God in the early years of his life, he was just terrified of God and terrified that he could never please God and and that his sin was so great he would never be forgiven and and uh, uh, and and yet when he when he developed this this theology that that he developed of of you know understanding justification by by grace and justification by faith and 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 uh, and all that he he. Uh, he suddenly became very courageous with with his um, uh, with his actions and and um, uh, so I, I think his courage is something that that always speaks well for for Luther and and for the church. So uh, that that would be one one thing I would point to. Um, he's a model to us for um, for being courageous. I remember, you know, you learn those early stories of Luther and his perspective of God, and you know being hours in the confessional, yeah. stepping out, remembering one more sin and stepping back in, mm-hmm. you know, the the self-mutilation, if you will, yeah. in response to God. Yeah, Luther certainly had a lot of courage, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily, as you would maybe argue, I don't think he knew he was going to start a revolution, you know, on right. October yeah, 31st. He, he, was, he was nailing these 95 arguments, these 95 disagreements with what the church was doing at the time. And obviously Luther and many of his contemporaries were condemned as heretic, yet they brought about this immense transformation to the church. As we think about that, as we think about that, you know, Luther is condemned by the church, he's, he's kicked out of the church, he's condemned as a heretic. You know, we, we tend to be in such a polarizing day and age when it comes to theology, when it comes to the church, obviously politics, mm-hmm. and, and we don't create a space for dialoguing with those that we don't see eye to eye with. So as much as things have changed, they really do stay the same. What, what do you think the church um, and theologians and followers of Christ can learn from, from what the church did to, to Luther? Well, um, as you as you said, Luther Luther never started out to to break from the church. He he never um, uh, he never intended to start a separate movement. Um, he saw a problem in the church, the problem of indulgences, and he 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 felt like uh, uh, the the sale of indulgences as they were portrayed. Uh, in his little area in Germany in the 16th century, he, he felt like that was just um, uh, flying in the face of, of what he understood as, as uh, uh, the grace of God and, and the importance of faith and so forth. And, and uh, um, so he, he, 
all he wanted to do was call the church's attention to what he felt like were abuses that were that were occurring and so um uh i i think that and and i i think that um the modern catholic church and its reaction uh today to to luther they they have um um there there have been some really interesting ecumenical uh dialogues that have happened between catholics and lutherans and and so forth and, and you know, finding ways to to recognize problems of the past and and uh, apologize for problems of the past, but I I think if the the Catholic Church of the 16th century could have um, could have heard Luther and and could have in some way or another taken him seriously and and actually looked at what he was saying, the problem was the culture of the the culture of of um, you know the 15th century. Um, and the papacy of the 15th century, uh, uh, you know, m- the, most of the popes or a lot of the popes from from that era viewed themselves as as royalty, and and um, um, you know that I, I just don't know that that in that day and time it would have been possible. But the lesson to learn from that is that perhaps what happened with the Reformation. Could have been avoided if if the church had taken Luther seriously, if the church had listened to Luther, and and sat down and tried to have some kind of meaningful dialogue with him. So you're trying to say that maybe people with power are willing to hold on to that power as long as they can, and oh, any yeah. threat to that power they might squash it out. Yes, this and, and you know that's human nature. It it is, but but looking back, you see, uh, you, you just see instances where if if someone had been willing to be just a little bit more humble, um, you know, a, some something could have been um, avoided. So as as we try to take uh, Luther's disagreements with the established church at the time. And maybe put it into our day and age. What theological disagreements might the church be generally condemning as anathema now that we might ought to stop and to listen to what our supposed heretics might be saying? Well, there's there's a <clears throat> there's a whole host of things um, in Baptist life that that we could point to. Um, you know, everything from um, uh, civil rights issues to um, uh, to to some some really divisive um, theological issues. I I I don't think the the issue in the broader Baptist community there there's always this tension between Calvinism and Arminianism, and um, uh, you know I've I've often thought that. Um, Perhaps in in some kind of way, um, you know, both both concepts, uh, while they seem so contradictory from to, to one another, uh, that that both concepts in some way or another, uh, in in a mysterious way that only God can know, um, might both be be true. And um, uh, but but if you talk to if you talk to folks in in both of those camps, sometimes they just don't want to listen to each other. And uh, and I think there are I think there are aspects of of both Calvinism and Arminianism that are that are valuable and theologically uh, valid. Um, 
And um, uh, so, you, you know, you've got theological issues like that. There are uh, all kinds of social issues that, that divide Christians. Um, you know, I, 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 I just think that that the church is is at its best when we're sitting down and we're talking to each other and we're fellowshipping with each other and we're we're trying to focus on things that we agree on rather than letting the things we disagree uh, about divide us. Well, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, obviously, as Luther is is trying to call for this public debate, there was, I guess. Um, a systematic local platform for him to do that, and then it obviously continues to elevate. But you think about, uh, we're in such a uh, divisive time when it comes to denominations and traditions. We really don't have that platform. You know, so what would that platform look like if we were to sit down and say, let's talk about our theological differences? Yeah. Believe it or not, you know there there are some there are some things happening, um, and and I want to you know I'd like to carry the discussion beyond just differences among Christians to differences between Christians and Jews and Muslims and and Hindus and and so forth because as as you know, um, you know the world's religions are are literally. Um, uh, in in our back door in in America now, and I mean, for the last thirty or forty years, the religious landscape of America has just changed dramatically. And and uh, so, um, how would it look like? Well, you know, there there are. Um, there are conferences that are held, and you can get the leaders together to sit down around tables and discuss things for a day and a half, and they create a document, they sign the document, and there's a press release. And, and uh, But I'm much more interested in organic kinds of things. So um, if I have... Um, if if I have a uh, a neighbor in my subdivision who is uh, Muslim, um, why not why not um, um, strike up a friendship across the fence with my Muslim neighbor and not just not just um, um, a, a, a casual hello how are you doing but but actually invite uh, his family to my house for dinner um, um, or if he invites me to his house for dinner we come for dinner and we actually sit and start talking about our religious traditions but it has to start with an initial friendship it has to start with uh, an initial respect for one another and um, and I, I think that that kind of dialogue between just Every thing, people that we encounter in everyday life, I think that's much more valuable than the leaders of religious tradition sitting down around a table and crafting a document and signing it. I, I, you know, so I think the the more in our daily life that we can um, uh, that that we can try to understand someone and their perspective, um, even though. It may create a visceral disagreement within us. Um, try to work through that and and try to find commonality with with people, and and so I think the only way it's going to change is for just average people like you and me uh, meeting folks at the grocery store, meeting folks in our subdivision, you know, meeting folks in various places, and 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 creating dialogue that way. 
know, when you really stop and think about it, what you're talking about doesn't sound heretical at all. It no. actually sounds... Oh, sounds know. like Jesus, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, sounds like that guy, Jesus of Nazareth. But, you know, then yeah. again, he was condemned as a heretic. So. Well, that's right. Yeah. And, and that's, the, that's the thing. I mean, if you do, if you do this kind of work, you're, you're inevitably, you're inevitably going to upset folks that, um, that don't want you. There, there are people who, I mean, there's a whole industry out there of folks that, that feed off of division. And um, uh, and when you start when you start upsetting that you start upsetting some folks and uh, well you got to sell books and you got to have your annual offerings up and you've got to secure your position and and your denominational entity um, and I think that's really the thing I mean we like to think we have advanced so much as civilization but geez we really haven't changed that much you know when when we when we find somebody we disagree with theologically, we would rather uh, blast them and condemn them as heretics. It might not be in front of a council. Um, you know, it might not be sending Luther into hiding, literally a threat of his life, but, you know, uh, people go as far as trying to ruin people's careers, you know, yeah. blasting them online, uh, writing books in response to. But what I hear you saying um, is that if the church had done that different with Luther— and if we do that different today, we might find maybe that we don't have that much, um, many differences in our theological perspective, and that some of these issues maybe are a lot bigger um, than we're making them out to be. I don't want to give the impression that Luther didn't have differences with the with the church, um, but in the in in the early days, he was seeking to correct uh, what he considered to be the church's abuse. Uh, of the poor, the, the the sale of indulgences to poor people that you know Luther was was um, uh, they were in his parish there in in Wittenberg and and he was watching them go out and and you know and buy these indulgences with money that he knew they didn't have and and he just felt like it was um, it was being abusive toward toward the poor and that's what he initially wanted to speak out against uh, I think I would be remiss if uh, if I also didn't point out that uh, Luther had a very dark side as well he he could be extremely stubborn and so so even if the church had listened to him I I, I really don't know uh, I, I mean Luther had to have it his way or I mean once he was convinced that he was right you really couldn't move Luther away from something from an idea and of course uh, there is this whole segment of in fact it's been it's been discussed a lot over the last year uh, of you know Luther's uh, treatment of the Jews and he wrote some he wrote a couple uh, he wrote a couple of treatises uh, about the Jews that uh, some of the language in in that is about as horrific as anything you could you could read and and uh, there are scholars who have who have connected you know that within Luther as as planting some seeds that that ultimately find its way out in in the Holocaust and so forth I I, I um I'll, I'll leave it to to Luther scholars who are much more uh, conversant in those things than I am, but but he he it is clear he he had a dark side, and I, I don't want to paint Luther as um, being anything more than a than a sinner saved by grace, like like the rest of us, and and uh, and and there may be a lesson in that 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 even you know um, 
that, that we all have dark sides that, that uh, perhaps we need to always be aware of. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the last 20 years of Luther's life. Let's call it Old Luther. Old Luther, yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking about the, uh, the Diet of Spire, the Marburg Colloquy, the, the Peasant Revolt. You know, as Luther is gaining ground in Germany, as he's gaining the support of the elite, the nobles, as he's gaining security, naturally most revolutions, as they are successful, institutionalized. Yeah. And Luther institutionalized, but right. it turned very dark. Obviously, you know, you've discussed this anti-Semitic tendencies. I wouldn't even call it tendencies. Yeah. But, you know, honestly, for me, I can't think about Luther without thinking about the hundred thousand plus peasants blood that right. is on the hands of luther and then we extend beyond luther we think about just how much of a jerk john calvin was <laughs> and we think about the magisterial reformers burning swiss brethren um, at the stake and and we have to talk about that these revolutionary folks also became cranky and self-righteous um, as they institutionalized. Yeah. Well, um, let's kind of separate Luther and Calvin for a second. Um, uh, Luther, Luther was once once he once he came under the protection of Frederick the Wise. Um, do you think he gave himself that name, Frederick the, the Wise? wise. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. He I, started I, walking around. Hey guys, uh, just by the way, you can start calling <laughs> me Frederick the Wise. The elector. <laughs> the elector. Yeah, the elector, Prince Frederick. Um, but uh, once, once he came under his protection, um, he he became beholden to the nobility in in Germany. But Luther had had come from the from the peasant. Um, population. He, he, his father had a little bit more money than than other um, um, probably other kids in his community. His father uh, had a kind of a managerial position with with the mining uh, enterprise that he worked with, and and at least had enough money to send Luther to school. Um, but still, he he was he came from very humble means, and and. Um, and, and and you know in 1525 when the peasants revolt revolted against the abuses from the princes in Germany and and uh, the oppression and so forth, uh, Luther had a, a a decision that he had to make and he he sided with the he he sided with the nobility, um, and I, I think in large part because he saw he saw with the peasants revolt anarchy. And he he uh, he believed that uh, anarchy would would never achieve uh, in, anything positive, and and so he he wrote that famous uh, that famous track uh, against the murderous hordes of of peasants uh, in 1525, and and basically gave license to the nobility to 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 slaughter the peasants, and and like you said, there there are estimates that as many as 125,000 peasants died. Um, it's really a really a tragic moment. Um, and, and and Luther does in his in his later years become uh, quite cranky. Uh, he he begins to suffer from some some health issues, uh, a lot of stomach um, um, problems. Uh, I've I've often wondered if if that might have been uh, attributed to um, probably his his diet and and maybe his overindulgence in in drinking um, uh, beer. You know he he did like his German beer. 
Um, and um, uh, so, so with with health problems, sometimes that impacts the way you view life and the way you view people around you. And and he became quite stubborn in his old age. And and um, um, so so yeah, there there is that aspect of Luther. Calvin, um, he, you know, uh, he, he, I, I'm not so sure that. I'm not so sure that any of these folks could could easily be. It, it's easy for us to look back into the 16th century and say, "How could you do such and such?" Right. Just as like, just like it's easy for us to look back into the 19th century into the American South and say, "How could you possibly argue that slavery is justified in the Bible?" It's 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 so easy for us to look back, and one day people will look back at the early 21st century and 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 say things like, "How could you possibly say?" That this or, or believe this or that. Oh, no, I think we got everything 100% right these days. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got it all figured out. It's it's ready for the millennium now. But, um, but you know, you're right. I mean, Calvin Calvin did burn, um, uh, he, he did authorize the burning at the stake of folks. He, I, and I'm not a Calvin expert at all, and, and so I, I need to, um, I need to kind of put that disclaimer out there, but, um, but I think in Calvin's mind, um, he felt like theological dissent could lead to theological anarchy, and therefore he and and that was um, uh, and 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 what he considered to be heresy w- was even worse than just dissent, and and so so I think he felt like that had to be dealt with uh, in a, in a firm way, and and so he had the uh, fifty plus burnings at the stake in Geneva, and and. Uh, um, uh, the most famous of which is Michael Servetus, and and um, um, so so yeah, there there is that in those in those guys. Um, you know, I think uh, I I continue to I've always believed the Anabaptists are the great heroes of the 16th century, and um, uh, and maybe they were maybe they had it more right than anybody else did. I, I think you point out something so so key, which is. Um we have to uh, look at history through a careful lens. We have to understand context and certainly understand that uh, limited knowledge. And, and we have to see there's understanding there. It's just like, you know, it's easy for us to look back at the church at the time and say, gosh, we didn't want it uh, in the vernacular. We didn't want the Bible in people's hands to just read and interpret because you understand that less than 10% of the population at the time uh, were able to read. You know, so the danger of people taking and using it to manipulate others is key. You know, and so it, it is important that we look back through and see that. But I think we certainly, as you have taught um, me and many others, that we look back at history and we learn from history of how we can do it better. Um, so as we look back at, um, I guess you can call them cranky, domineering, exclusive. I'm going to call John Calvin a jerk. How can we? How can we learn to do it better? Well, that's that's a great question, and and you know maybe maybe the way I address uh, address that question that question is is um, um, you know perhaps a, a, I'm I'm dialoguing with myself here because uh, you know I'm I'm 58 years old now and and uh, I'm older than I was um, 25 years ago and 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 I am I am I've I've talked with friends about this uh, as you get older you do tend to get set in your ways and things frustrate you more when you're older uh, than than maybe they did when you were 35 or or 30 or or whatever. Um, 
So I think, uh, you know, I think an awareness of that um, is is always helpful, and an honesty to to admit that is is always helpful. Um, I I think that it's always helpful for as we age to um, to be willing to hear the Spirit uh, speak in the church and and to recognize that the spirit speaking in the church um can can come about in ways that might be very different than what we have always been accustomed to and if christian history teaches us anything at all it is that the church in its best moments is the church modifying itself to accommodate itself to the age in which it's living. And when the church gets behind the times um, uh, and, and refuses to, to, um, to, to, to make the gospel message relevant to its day uh, and, and to, its, to its current time, then, then that's when the church, I think, becomes oppressive. And, um, and, and, and so I think that for us, both individually or, or in, in our churches, we, we have to be real, willing to recognize that change must happen. And um, that, that's not to say that we always throw out the great things of the past. You can hold on to the great things of the past, but there has to be a willingness to be open to new things. And the older we get, the more difficult that becomes because new things make us nervous. Um, I am thankful that my, my generation, um, you know, we're, we're kind of on the, on the edge of the technology stuff. I can use a computer. I can use an iPhone. I can use an iPad. Um, there are people 10 years older than I am that, uh, that are not as, as, um, uh, uh, not as competent with with technology, and I'm not nearly as competent as technology as my daughters are, um, and that's just an example uh, that you know new things can make us nervous, and so so I think uh, as I'm as I'm moving into the uh, I'm not going to call it the twilight years yet, but as I'm as as I'm moving past noon <laughs> into the afternoon of my life, uh, I, I one of the things I want to remind myself is to is to is to try to be open to to new things and and to seeing things done in new ways. Um, and, and I think that if Luther, when he was an older man, if Calvin, you know, in his day, if they could have just uh, found some kind of way to, to open themselves to. Uh, but I, I don't know that that would have been possible in the 16th century. I, I, you know, I may be speculating about something, but, but uh, certainly in our day and time, I, I think it's possible. Well, first of all, you look fantastic. And you're running more miles today than you were 25 years ago so yeah well that's right i you know if i can get this knee injury uh taken care of that i'm dealing with right now but yeah there's my medals right there from from my races so well and i i guess i have to also lump myself into the uh, uh the old group because uh my three-year-old said to me last night she said daddy you're you're losing your hair <laughs> And she said, that means you're a big boy now. So, so yeah, finally, I've made it, you know. Um, yep. But, you know, maybe something for us to consider, and Luther certainly had this, 
uh, we kind of have a more of a, a jovial perspective into the group that Luther surrounds himself with. You know, the famous book Table Talks with Luther. <laughs> That's right. It's kind of yeah. drunken tirades. Yeah. And many of these other um, reformers had successors. They clearly had someone they were helping uh, bring, uh, raise up to, to help lead the next generation. But maybe, and this is something for us to consider today, maybe as we age and as we institutionalize, we need to surround ourselves with a diverse community of people that yeah. can, uh, you know, that could, we can sound ideas to that can maybe be the honest people to say, like, you sound like an idiot. You yeah. know, you, yeah. you need to maybe rethink um, that. But I think we have a tendency, and this is human nature, that as we grow in years and experience and power, um, we think we've got it all together. We think we've got it all right. And we forget that. Typically, it was a village that helped raise us and shape us into who we have become. Right. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I, um, uh, it, it's easy to talk about uh, surrounding yourself with diversity and opening yourself to new ideas. It's it's difficult to do. <laughs> it's it's always a goal that I think we ought to work toward. And uh, but uh, but yeah, you're right. It it. Um, uh, that that's always a goal that that we need to we need to keep before us. So as we look back, you know, uh, the fun of trying to talk thirty five minutes on the five hundredth anniversary of the Reformation. What do you think the biggest takeaways are uh, for the church today? What can we learn from these reformers? Well, um, <clears throat> one is is what what I what I just mentioned. Uh, the, the, you know that that the the God's Spirit is always blowing through the church, and uh, it's it's never stagnant. The, the church is always the, the church is always reforming and changing, and and I mean the church universal, and. And, and and I think that the Reformation teaches us that I, there there are as as I teach in my church history class, um, you know there are certain centuries in the twenty going on twenty one centuries of Christianity that that are uh, what I call watershed centuries. You know certainly the I, I would I would put the fourth century in that category with with uh, Constantine and then with the Council of Nicaea, the formation of Trinitarian theology and so forth and and. Um, uh, I, I, I think you have to put the 16th century in that in that category. Maybe, maybe, uh, uh, maybe some could make a case for earlier centuries. But uh, I think the 19th century is clearly in that uh, in that in that category, particularly. Uh, the 19th century in North America, as uh, American Christianity begins looking out beyond its borders and and uh, wanting to carry the gospel to, to other places, but it also is grappling with America's original sin of slavery and and uh, and and how the church comes through that century into the 20th century is uh, is I think a, an important story, and and where where it's you know where the church is going I, I you know I don't know I don't know what the rest of the 21st century is going to is going to hold um but i do know the church is going to always be there and 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 the church is always going to be um uh 
encountering culture. And there are always going to be those who, who don't want the church to encounter culture. There are always going to be those that will want the church of the 19th century. They're going to want the church of the 1950s. They're going to want the church of uh, 2005 or what, you know, whatever. There, there are always going to be folks that are going to resist that, but they're not going to stop the church from moving and they're not going to stop the spirit from, from moving. And, um, and so I think one of the great lessons of the Reformation is that the church continues to, um, uh, to move and, and to change and to modify. Hmm. Now, you're, you're working on a pretty cool project right now um, with a group of folks around the religious traditions in North Carolina. Tell right. us about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a—I'm co-editing a book with um, uh, Judge Willis Wichard and with um, uh, Dr. James Clark— um, and it's it's a book that's going to be published by the North Carolina Society. It's an organization here in North Carolina that's um, devoted to promoting uh, North Carolina heritage and and history and 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 culture and so forth. And uh, we're we're working on a book. We're editing a book on the various religious traditions of North Carolina. We're we're looking at uh, we we've asked representative writers to write the story of their tradition in North Carolina. And, and uh, there are some really, really good articles that, that are going to be a part of this book. And, and uh, so we're hoping to get, we're hoping to get this to a publisher this fall and, and maybe in a year or so the, the volume be out. So uh, that's, that's an exciting, doesn't even have a title yet. We we're you know, we're still collecting the articles and so forth. Now, the last time we spoke about the Reformation, it ended with a final answer. I was going to say, it might have been about your final exam. I don't know. Yeah, so can I get out of here today without, <laughs> without that happening? Yeah, I won't give you a test today. All right. Well, Dr. Jonas, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and having a conversation. Um, very insightful for us to, to look back at the, the lessons learned. Obviously, the theological implications, uh, we know those because as, as Baptists especially, um, we would not have ended up in Amsterdam and then to the outer parts of the earth, um, if it wasn't for Luther and the, and the Reformers. Um, but thank you for bringing great insight into how this can remind the church today to continue to be led by the Spirit of God. Yeah, thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. This week's podcast is brought to you by Campbell University Youth Theological Institute, or CYTI. CYTI invites students ages 14 to 18 to stand at the intersection of faith and vocation, beginning with a two-week summer residential experience at Campbell University. During the two weeks, students explore their own stories of who God is calling them to be and what God may be calling them to do. Students spend time with our faculty, industry leaders, and service agencies, experiencing and reflecting on the disciplines of social entrepreneurship, restorative justice, public health, engineering, and congregational leadership, as well as how to positively impact their communities through faith, work, and volunteerism. Our goal is for students to begin to understand their gifts, interests, talents, and passions as ways in which God may be preparing them for their work in this world. Limited space is available for the summer of 2018, June 24th through July 7th. Learn more at campbell.edu backslash C-Y-T-I or find Campbell Youth Theological Institute on Facebook. Also check back regularly for our blog posts and information about one-day student faith and vocational events in January. 
As we go, we want to give a special thank you to this week's sponsors, the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University and Campbell University Youth Theological Institute. Be sure to visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories from our field personnel and church starters, along with their advocacy work and congregational work across the globe.